We've been to all four corners of Britain in our quest to interview the great and good of entertainment. Comics, actors, writers, politicians, singers, dancers and choreographers. It doesn't matter who they are. They've all given me their own take on the world they live in and have, in their own way, helped to define what makes Britain great. So join me and my assistants as we get another insight into the marvellous and enigmatic world of showbiz here on Beyond the Title. Writer, executive and personal manager Roger Edwards has been instrumental to some of Britain's best-loved game shows of the last 40 years. Closely associated with Les Dennis and Dustin G., Roger charted the rise and fall of the late great comedian up until his death in 1986. Following this, he reunited with Les Dennis as programme consultant for ITV's Family Fortunes and was a part of the production crew for the early evening quiz show Bullseye with the eccentric Jim Bowen. Retiring from entertainment, Roger masterminded Sgt Pepper's Friendship Club, a charity which attempts to combat loneliness. I caught up with a TV executive turned fundraiser to talk stars, charity and his recollections on a fruitful career in TV. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr Roger Edwards. So, firstly... I've interviewed many people who have been instrumental behind the scenes in the entertainment industry, many of whom are extremely talented in their own right. How frustrating is it to be the guy behind the spotlight? Ah, that's the thing, isn't it? Well, you've you've interviewed lots of people, uh, Josh, who are talented. That all comes to a crashing end today because I'm not not one. (laughs) Well... I I'm I'm lucky in as much as I I've had a career a very successful career behind the camera in television and I've also had a successful career as a performer so I'm 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 lucky really I'm also lucky in in that I um I do lots of things so I'm not I'm not precious about just being beholden to the entertainment industry, although I still love it. And the, the work I do now, I sort of shoehorn it in, if you know what I mean. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm still performing when COVID allows us to, but I'm still doing it. Yeah. So that's me. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, however, you've recently emerged from the spotlight in a cameo on the BBC One panel show, Would I Lie to You, revealing that you used to take Les Dennis to work in your fancy classroom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, having listened to the Colin Edwards podcast, there is a story behind this. So you can, can you fill us in on that? Of course I will. Yeah. We, when we recorded Family Fortunes, I did 16 years of Family Fortunes, 17 series altogether with Les. Um, there was, in fact, it was only myself and Les that were the that did everyone. Everything, everyone else changed. You know, all the personnel changed. But Les is an old mate. We go back just prior to him being famous, really. Um, and um, but we st- used to stay in this little boutique hotel uh, in Nottingham called the Hotel de Clos. Well, I had a van. Because another business I had was hiring out bouncy castles, skittle alleys, marquees, <laughs> and all this stuff. Well, sometimes I would have to go to work in the van, so I would I would take the van to Nottingham. And Les, he he loved all that stuff. He loved the fact that I got the, the van and used to come in the van, and he used to want to go to work in the van. Let's go to work in the van, and we. This is absolutely true. So we would pile into the van. There was myself, who I was the like associate producer on the show. There was Colin Edmonds, who was the writer. Mike Coleman, who was a writer. Bobby Bragg, who was a warm-up man. And Les, you see. And we would all pile into the van and we would go to work. But you come to the gates, and you know what these guys are like at the gates, these jobs worth. So you can say it now because it's gone. But there were jobs worth. And I'd turn up in the van, and the first thing I'd do, I had a bugle, I used to blow the bugle, and she'd go, do, 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 and the bloke would come out and he'd say, they weren't laughing. They they didn't find it funny, which made it even funnier. <laughs> so the bloke would say, what you got on the van, he says, what you got? And I said, um, I've got two writers, one warm-up man, 
three bouncy castles, a skit lally, and um television host. And he'd say, Let's and he this is true, this is he said, Can we have a look? And he went, I said, Of course you can. And he opened the back doors of the van, the truck the Ford, Ford Transit out the back doors, and Les is sitting on Bouncy Castles, and it, and it looks at Les because he's a I mean he's a big name, and Les says if it's up there I'll give you the money myself, <laughs> 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 and, and this security bloke went coming in, like they never laughed, and we did this day after day. It wasn't a one off. It was like we would turn up every day. There'd be a bugle. Or there could be a didgeridoo. There could be... I'm looking for a didgeridoo because I've got a didgeridoo here. There would be anything, a mouth organ. It could be anything and you turn up. But they don't laugh. That's the, that was the funny thing. <laughs> Security guards don't find anything funny. It's a bit like, and I, sh- I shouldn't be telling you this, but it's true. It's a bit like a few years back, I, I had to go into hospital. Um, I had um, a gall gallbladder thing that was quite quite bad and um i was lying in the bed and the and the doctor came around and said and she said would you mind if um we get some students in and i said by all means bring them in so there was about 12 around the bed and they drew the curtains and then they did the you know what's coming where they did the finger up the bum (laughs) you see so they said can you lie on your side well, I've got all these students <laughs> and all these people, all these health bods. And I said, thinking I was being me, I said, so the the doctor put the finger in the place and said, and I said, aren't you supposed to take me for dinner first? <laughs> <laughs> and no one laughed. No one laughed. Which was worse. So I was blushing, not because of what they were doing. I was blushing because they weren't laughing. But anyhow, yeah, things that the story with Les is absolutely true. But we used to do all sorts of things like that because Les, Les very much, he's very, he's he's very much like, love. he's up for a laugh. I'll tell you one thing we did many years ago. We were, we, I, I was with Les in Panto. And video recorders hadn't long come out. And do you remember the Roger Cook show on television? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Roger Cook used to be this private investigator and he would investigate any misdemeanors that were going on. I came to work in his next door office years later, but anyhow... I had this video camera that I'd hired for the weekend and myself and Les, we were in Nottingham doing panto and between shows on the Saturday, we walked into a shop and pretended we were from the Roger Cook show. Uh, Honest. So we walked in and said, um, we've we've come to investigate the the dodgy shirts you're selling to this bloke. And this bloke, because he'd seen all these shows... He said, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. Get out. <laughs> we we never we didn't stop laughing for a week. <laughs> Anyhow, I've digressed. Where were we? Oh, why did you have a, a bugle in your car? Oh, <laughs> well, this is the thing. I collect musical instruments. Um, there's a shaker right by the side of me. I've got mouth organs everywhere. I, I love musical instruments. And honestly, honestly, if there's a drawer down there and I've got, Rain things in the things that make it rain. I've got um, oh, there's everything, but I've always collected musical instruments. I love um, I love music. I play music. I'm uh, you know. Here's the thing, <clears throat> I've started to play the piano since lockdown. 
but I've only started, I've only been playing about two months and I can do about 50 songs already. I'm really chuffed with myself. They're not very good, but I'm doing them. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so you've been present at many defining moments for British comedy. I've spoken with Jimmy Tarbuck about his memories of this night, but what are your memories of Tommy Cooper's untimely demise? Well, the the the, the, the Tommy Cooper thing, I wasn't there that night, but I know all about it, and it's it's it was a horrendous story, and the story of that night of of, of Tommy Cooper dying was that obviously it was a live show, and Tommy had requested that they have uh, curtains. And mm. they always did the, the live from Her Majesty's without curtains. But he wanted to do the trick, if you remember, where he pulled the ladder from between the curtains as if he was pulling it from between his legs. So they gave him the curtains. And the next act due to be on was, was Les and Dustin. And um, Tommy came on and, of course... He, we all saw it in front of our very eyes. He, he, he died in front of everyone. And Les and Dustin used to tell the story um, a lot. I wasn't there, as I say, that night. Um, Tommy passed away, and they, they pulled him through the curtains. And David Bell, who was the producer, said is the words, cue commercial break, and they, they just went straight to a commercial break. But it was at that point that Jimmy Tarbuck said uh, he'd got to introduce Les and Dustin. Les, it, Jimmy Tarbuck was obviously very much taken aback with it and said, ladies and gentlemen, Les Dennis and Dustin G, and he got that word in slightly wrong, but I think he could be forgiven for that. But the story goes that because they were impressionists, they had the props table at the back of, their, the stage where they were working and Dustin went to the props table and he could hear the medical people working on Tommy Cooper and he could hear him, someone say it's okay he's been sick um, and apparently you could see Tommy's uh, shoe through the curtain while they were on um, I, I, you know that was what they said Um but it was an horrendous thing that happened, and it was absolutely awful. How on earth they went on and performed during that is just testament to their professionalism. The pair of them were, you know, amazing. For I mean, yeah. it'd be one of those things that would affect you for years to come, I should imagine. But here's the irony. Dustin said after that, he said, I'd like to go like that. That's how I'd like to go. And he he wasn't far off. You know, we were in Southport when Dustin died. Dustin Dustin walked off the stage. We were doing Cinderella and Dustin came off and he walked into the dressing room and he was getting ready for the next scene and he said oh, let me just sit down. I said, I, I, I just feel a bit strange. He didn't make the settee. He didn't make the sofa. And he just collapsed on the floor. And Basil Soper, the company manager, came in and started working on him. Ro uh, there was a lad called Robert that was knocking about, and Robert put his head to Dustin's chest and said, he's not breathing. He's not, he's not, there's no heartbeat. And he was screaming. Uh, Basil Soper worked on him. He was giving him, uh, what do they call it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, uh, the ambulance came. And I got in the ambulance with Dustin. So there was myself and Dustin. And I'd seen this man die in front of me. He, he, he died. Um, so I was... Uh, with Dustin, they rushed him into the hospital, and I'm, 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 as I say, I'm with him, and they wouldn't allow me into the resource room. 
but they'd got there was windows like those little circular windows and i was looking through this circular windows and i could see in what was happening and obviously it was about it it felt about 11 o'clock at night it couldn't have been it could only have been probably half past nine if that anyhow um and it was quiet it was like new year's day so it was all quiet and um i could see them putting the paddles on him and he was bouncing off the he was bouncing off the table you know he was really and I, for all intents and purposes he died now here's the irony of the, of this this was in within moments and a photographer from the sun was there so there was myself and there was a photographer from the sun that's how quick these guys work you know that's that was what they were yeah. they, they they got him into a um stabilized him you know they, and they put him to bed and um by that time les turned up at the hospital and we 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 were with dustin and that night we went to les's house in liverpool and um i stayed there and i remember les sitting up myself les and les's wife at the time lynn we were sitting up saying it this is it it's all over you know this is it's all finished there's, he, there's no way he can come back from this um it was very very distressing very distressing yeah yeah that, that was actually what josh's next question apart of it just to ask you about that uh that incident you know that yeah. time um uh just moving on from that um can I just come, I'll come back to that, Josh, if you don't mind, because the irony of it, it was that that um, the pantomime went on. Um, it was in- incredible, and they brought Jim Bowen in as a stand-in. Well, he's you can, ready, he's ready to just pop, like step in straight away. Yeah, yeah. 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 Jim Bowen lived not that far away up the M6, and he said he got in touch with the office and he said he'd do it. Um, it should have been cancelled. The whole show should have been cancelled, you know. And I think these days they would cancel it as a token of respect. But they didn't. They kept it going as what they called a tribute. Um, it was not a good thing and they shouldn't have done it. Um, I think it had a lasting effect on myself. I think it had a lasting effect on Les. Uh, incidentally, Les... Les, uh, his book was titled, he wrote a book titled Must the Show Go On? Um, And that was a direct result of why does the show have to go on? You know, when you question it. It was something my dad always used to say to me, and I used to, I can remember mentioning it to Les a few times. Why does, someone said the show's got to go on. Who said? Why has the show got to go on? What, what, it's only a show. It's, it's, it's. It's not a hospital or, you know, the police force or anything. It's a show. Madness. Absolutely. It's absolutely crazy, yeah. Well, how did you feel about your knowing time like working on it was that a bit of a kick in the teeth that you know they expected it just to go on just like you were saying like yeah work yeah. you know carry on guys you know everyone do your job basically uh, yeah i I, th- I think you got a point there josh at the, josh at the time i was very much like are you sure this has got to go on but the 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 worst part of the show the worst part of it all for me was when the show had all finished and the, all the run had come to an end, Les and myself went to the theatre and we collected Dustin's props and they were all still hanging up in this little quick change room that had been built. And that was heartbreaking. Um, it was one of those that, you know, it really was tough. That was tough, yeah. you know, collecting all these blokes' 
gear. And I had his stuff for years and years, you know. I kept it for years and years. Um, uh, He was an incredible, incredible talent. Um, It's... If you'd have been around him and seen what he could do, you know, his impressions were of another... They were off the scale. Um, When he did John Cleese, for instance, John Cleese wrote a letter to him and said, you know, that's that's as good as I've seen anyone do Basil Fawlty. And that, that letter was framed and on his mom's wall. Uh, in Fulford in York when we used to go there. Um, when he did Larry Grayson, he, he would start getting ready as Larry Grayson and, and he would become Larry Grayson in front of you. You'd never seen anything like it. And then he would suddenly just take it on this persona of Larry Grayson. He would start talking like him. This, it, you've never seen anything quite like it. And Les, to complement it, the act... Les did hundreds and hundreds of impressions. Dustin did big flamboyant impressions. So it became a bit of a sparring match. You know what I mean? It was like Dustin had hit you with the Larry Grayson and Les had come back with a million little fast fast impressions. Then Dustin had come back with the big Scylla Black and Les had come back with about ten other little impressions, which were good. I remember Dustin once saying that his favourite impressionist, he said, I'm not just saying this because I work with him. He says, he's Les. You know, this was... And he told me that he he used to really rate Les before they were, they even teamed up. He said he was... How good he was. I mean, it was... It, it, was, it was always annoying with Les because he used to do the impression of myself and mm. I used to get really cheesed off. I don't now. I mean, I, th- I think... Now, looking at it, he would start to do impressions of me. (laughs) And I used to feel it was cruel, but it wasn't. It was spot on. (laughs) And I'll tell you what he does. Les Les used to do, and and people don't know this, but he's a great drawer. He can do great caricatures, and he'd he'd draw you two. He'd suddenly, you'd be in his company. We'd be anywhere. We could be on a plane. We'd be in the theatre. We'd be in the dressing room doing something, and he'd suddenly go, get me a pencil, quick, get me a pencil. And he'd see someone, and he'd draw them, and he was great at that. He was also great at, if you signed something or anyone signed anything, he could do their signature almost mirror-perfect. So his impressions didn't begin and end with just the voices. He he had a skill for, you know, I used to yeah. say to him, you'll make more money as a forger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, looking back now, what are the parallels between Dustin and Tommy? Massive, massive. Um, d- the parallels are both extremely borderline genius genius is a funny word both borderline genius but both had their own distinct style um both dustin fortunately came off the stage and died but he died he didn't really know anything other than coming off that stage tommy died in similar circumstances it was very very similar um yeah it's very 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 similar um not not nice either, I don't think. I mean, you know, I, I just think it's... I, for me, it's it's not dignified. It was, you know, it's too public. That was That's how I thought of it. But um, many ways, privileged to be around. It's, you know, privileged to, you know, it's something... It's something that years... A couple of years after that, Les was given family fortunes and I started to work with Les on family fortunes. When I got there, I felt really at home and the people at Central Television, as it was, made me really welcome. And at the end of the run of the 26 shows, I contributed to the shows. I used to say, well, what if we did this or did that? And, you know, put put my little bits in. And um, the a man called Tony Wolfer was the program controller he said to me would you like to work here and I said yeah I would 
So I worked at, at, at Central Television on all sorts of shows, um, and that was a direct result of, of Les being given family fortunes, uh, which is which is what he did and made a great fist of, yeah. All right, if we can go back a few years, in terms of light entertainment, the working men's club circuit is frequently overlooked when citing the landmarks in comedy. In your yeah. opinion... In your opinion, how did Les's rise to fame help put a spotlight on the working men's club's contribution to entertainment? Well, I, this is this is interesting because when I remember when Phoenix Knights first came out, the Peter Case Phoenix Knight, I remember Les feeling slightly affronted when he first saw it. He saw it with me, and I said, "You've got to see this," and he felt slightly affronted because he's he's very uh, protective of that background. I mean, you know, Les was, Les comes from a very working class background and he's very proud of that background and very proud of that's the way they people went, you know, their entertainment was that. Um, I'm similar, you know, I come from a very working class background. I I wouldn't destroy what people did. They That was, that was what they did. And um, it's the toughest, toughest background you will ever see i mean the kids that do the comedy circuits and that these days where they do five minutes and whatever it doesn't even start to tell you how tough the working class the the working men's clubs are you know the working men's clubs you would do you could do two 40 minute spots so you'd go on before the bingo and after the bingo it was tough i mean there's no two ways about it it, it's it's tough stuff, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 it's you know you 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 meet so many people that have that have, that have done it, and you've heard all the stories uh, of doing it. But they're hard, hard places, and they're very, very few to find these days. Do you know? Here's one for you, Josh. Do you know? Um, I used to work with a man called Jeff Sutton uh, in Rill, and Jeff told me once he said he was in a group a band and they played around the manchester area he said and we did a whole year six nights a week we used to have monday off he said we did six nights a week and we never went to the same club twice in the manchester area. that tells you just how many clubs there were there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds you know. And that was the end of variety, wasn't it? I think you're right there. I think you've got a point. I think it's all part and parcel of it. I think Russ Abbott was very much one of the last of that. He was almost all vaudevillian, you know, the way he... I, I, um, his act with the Black Abbots, um, it was very, very much of that ilk, and then they all sadly they all 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 closed. But um, I say sadly, um, but there was part of it that was not nice, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. In 1987, Les Dennis was given the keys to ITV's flagship game show, Family Four. Yeah following in the footsteps of legends Bob Monkhouse and Max Bygraves. As a production assistant, how did you help Les put his own stamp on the show? I didn't. Les, Les, Les had got it. It was all his own. Um, I'll tell you something now that not many people know this. When he first was offered Family Fortunes, he, 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 he saw it as a downward step because back then, you did a game show. It, you were, it was like, you know, you've, is that all you can do? And so he, he, he didn't, he didn't like the fact that he was doing a game show. Um, his very, very clever manager at the time did a three series deal. Um, so he was allowed to be bad for the first couple of series, you know, and he couldn't. When you say the first couple of series, really, you're only bad for a couple of weeks. But it takes when you're doing twenty six shows, uh, you're doing you're doing half a year's worth of shows in a couple of weeks. Yeah. So it was it was 
uh, he was struggling for, for what the public saw as six months, but in reality it was two weeks. <laughs> but but there's n- here's the thing: there was never any training for this type of thing. They did a pilot. I'll tell you about Leslie's schedule if you like, and y- you know, I mean, if I tell people this schedule. Very often they look at me like I'm some sort of lunatic, but this was Les's schedule, and I was part and parcel of this. Now, one day we did the Russ Abbott show rehearsals till five o'clock at night. I got in the fast car and I went to Blazers Club in Windsor, and I did a band call for him for Windsor. Les was taken in a fast car to Birmingham where he did a pilot show for um, Family Fortunes. He got in another fast car, but it was Bank Holiday Monday, so he was stuck in traffic, and gets back to Blazers. At Blazers, he came in very late, you know, about 10 o'clock at night. He barely had time to put his stage clothes on, and he was on stage doing his act. And this is from, you know, quarter to nine in the morning till one o'clock, half past one, finish stage and probably get home at two or three the next morning. That's a tough old schedule. Uh, we, 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 when we were on the road, uh, this, was the, this was after we'd done the first series of Family Fortunes. You can see why I left him. On the Monday, we would be... Um, Sunday was Patheli. Monday was we'd come back to my house. Les would sleep on the settee. God knows why. Why didn't there was no posh hotels? Sleep on the settee, and then the Monday we'd get up and go to Jersey. Two nights in Jersey. Come back. Probably have two nights cabaret somewhere, and then it would finish off with probably the Isle of Man or something like that. And that was constant. I mean, I I can't ever remember being anything other than tired. You know, <laughs> it was absolutely horrendous, really. But there was a story of Mick Miller. Do you know Mick Miller, the the great Mick Miller? Yeah, Josh actually interviewed him last week. Did you? He's great. Well, the the story with Mick Miller was that he was once booked to do a little tour of a week's tour of the Southwest. So he was going to, he thought he was going around Torquay and Paynton and all that. So he, he, his first night, he booked his digs in Bristol and his first night was in Torquay. And like his second night would have been in Hale, Cornwall. And then he'd come back to Bristol. His third night was in Leicester. And then his fourth night was somewhere (laughs) bonkers like Swindon. And after the fourth night, he said, I'm packing this in. <laughs> so he said to the, he phoned the agent up and he, the agent said, you can't pack it in. He said, I'll report you to equity. And Mick Miller said, I'm going to report you to the AA. <laughs> 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 but it's a true story. <laughs> Mick did a week in, in the Southwest and it was, it ended up being all over the country. <laughs> Uh, Family Fortunes wasn't the only popular game show you were involved with because in 1989 you joined a team on ITV's Bullseye. You must have lots of stories about the eccentric Jim Bowen. Oh, Jim never, ever stopped. He was the funniest man God ever put on this planet. Bless him. Um, the, the rehearsals were... They had to stop because there's a thing called a ring main in television where every office can see what's on in the studios. And they had to stop putting it on in the in the offices because no work was being done. Everyone was watching bullseye rehearsals. It was like a lad's weekend. It was absolutely outrageous, and Jim was outrageous. Uh, very very funny. I mean, just hysterically funny. Um, I'll tell you one quick story. You're going to like this, Josh. Jim, it's all right now. I can tell it now. He's passed away. But Jim used to have his, those clothes, and they would they would have twenty. He'd have twenty six jackets, twenty six pairs of trousers, and like probably half a dozen pairs of shoes. 
But Jim used to go on the QE2 every year. And one of the things he did was he used to sell all these clothes to the captain of the QE2. (laughs) 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 Anyhow, he gets, so Bullseye's finished and he gets his car loaded and he puts all these clothes in the back of the QE, the back of the, 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 his car and a, Two days later, he goes and gets on board the QE2 because the thing about ships is you can take as much luggage as you like. Well, he's got all these clothes and he sells them to the captain of the ship. That's fine. Mm -hmm. Comes off the ship about four weeks later and he has a call from Central and they say, all the openings that we did for the 26 shows have got to be done again. One of the cameras wasn't working. We've just found out in the edit. So we can do them all again. And uh, Jim said, oh, all right, I'll be down. And they said, bring the clothes, can you? And he went, I, I, I can't. They're all, <laughs> they're probably ran halfway around the world now. He'd sold a lot. He was up to all sorts. He was up to everything. When I first met Jim, he came into the dressing room after Dustin had died and I walked into the dressing room and Jim was early and Jim was on the phone in the dressing room doing a deal for tea bags. <laughs> I, I haven't got a clue Why? What, what it was, but he was selling tea bags to someone. So we turn up, we turn up for bullseye, <laughs> it turn up for bullseye and so you've got a question meeting to get a contestant meeting. All these things have got to be done before the show. This is big show, um, and all the Jim was interested in. He'd got a con. He'd met someone from Nike training sh- shoes. He'd met someone, so he'd got a contact at Nike, and so he was selling training shoes to everyone. <laughs> so you go into the question meeting, and we didn't talk about Bullseye. He would say, find, find out what size that contestant's shoes are. He said, because, you know, that bloke from Newcastle, he said, uh, uh, he looks a size 10, I can get him some 10s. And you're thinking, we're talking a multi-million pound show here. All you're bothered about is, is, selling, is selling trainers. <laughs> the, the other thing he did, which was, this is funny, I told this on Collins, but it's true. Richard, who was the producer and director, lovely man, Richard Bradley, um, we used to have the exchange in Mart back in those days before the internet. And Richard was uh, very car-orientated and saw a lovely um, he saw a, he saw a lovely uh, sports car that he liked. And Jim said, what are you looking at? And he said, he said there's a sports car in Coventry. And he said, give us, give us, give us the exchange in Mart here. And he took the exchange of Mart off Richard. He said, which one is it? Richard showed him and he said, give us a phone. He picks the phone up and he said, hello, Jim Bowen here. Now you've got a car here, three grand. I'm going to give you two for cash. It's like, <laughs> Richard said, I'm only looking. <laughs> it, it was, his, it was all the time. It was hysterical. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, he was like a Dell boy. Oh, yeah, definitely. Dell boy of the game shows, Jim Bowen, without question. (laughs) Without question. I can, as I say, I can tell it now because he's gone. But something had happened on one show, Josh. Something had happened where he'd met someone, right? And there were two watches. There was a gent's watch and a lady's watch, gold. And Jim was involved in this scam somewhere. So he said, he, when, when they come to the part of the show where they said, keep out the black in the red, nothing in this game for two in a bed. And Jim was very insistent that these people go for the watches. And he said, he, he said to these people, now in it, in one, it was, you've got the toaster. In two. And Jim said, and in six, eh, you've got lovely watches. Now, I'd go for the watches if I were you. 
<laughs> and, the, and the people were going, watches, what? He said, and bully special prize, probably the speedboat or whatever. And Jim said, no, no, it's up to you. Out the black in the red, in the red and all these things. But don't lose those watches. And he kept on about the watches. Right to the end of the show, when they did win the watches, and when he says goodnight at the end of the show, he said, hey, what a lovely show we've had, haven't we? He said, we've had Eric Bristow on, he were great. He said, we've had... Uh, We've had, we've won a speedboat, but hey, top the show. Those watches, weren't they lovely? (laughs) (laughs) It it done a deal. It done a deal. (laughs) So the show was like a market stall rather than a television show. There was something going on that we didn't know about, but he was funny with it. He was really funny. Yeah. I've interviewed many people of your generation in television, and like you, most of them have opted for a total career change, and you've done this with remarkable success, which we'll touch upon in a moment. But why do you think experienced people like yourself are considered disposable in the modern TV climate? Well, it's funny that, going back to Richard, Richard Bradley, I remember we were walking down a corridor once in television, and he said, look, Rog, no one's no one here over 50. And he said... Always rem- just remember that. And I thought, at the time, I thought he's got a point. And I think it is a younger person's game. I mean, the, the hours are... I don't know why the hours are so ridiculous. Where you'd get up in the morning at silly o'clock and go to bed at silly o'clock at night. I don't know why the hours have to be so punishing. I don't understand that. I d- they do it on films. It's always amazed me when people say, oh, I was up at five o'clock. And you, why? Yeah. You know, I know there's budgets, but, you know, it's like <laughs> there's budgets and there's punishment, isn't there? And I, and, and I think television is very much like that. I was pleased when I, when I did um, Would I Lie to You recently, and it seemed very civilised, that did. It seemed very, you know, we're going to do one show. Uh Whereas back in the day, they'd have squeezed about four out of it, you know. And it looks, and it, and it, the sh- that show benefits from doing one show a night because it looks fantastic. Yeah. I mean, the funny, the funny, and it's got everything to it. And I think, I think it's false economy very often by doing half a dozen shows in a day. It looks like it. And in the end, on Bullseye, it looked like we we started to we 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 ended up do, we started doing two a day and we ended up doing three a day, and you could tell, you could tell the last show you you really could it, it had got a, it had a tired look about it. Yeah, people were knackered, you know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you know. And I've heard people say a similar thing about Bradley on the chase. They're saying they're looking at it and saying he looks tired, yeah. you know. Um, <laughs> I love I love him by the way I think he's great but I, I if if um if he's doing more you know two or three a day it will it will show you can tell you just yeah. like you're watching you think oh it's been a long day yeah yeah, yeah. yeah it's yeah. true and <laughs> Yeah, you've got to like give it time, let it breathe, and so it could be natural. Every time you go to film a new sh- episode, you know you've got to have that feel about it, haven't you? Spot on, boys. It's absolutely true. It's got to look, you know. I think it's almost insulting to an audience, isn't it? You know that they turn on and they're watching a tired show, and yeah. it, but it's but it's 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 helped someone's budget. But you're right. I think you're right. Let it breathe. Let it let it have that freshness about it. Yeah. But it's always the way, isn't it? I was a red cat when I was a red cat with Butlins. I mean, that was the same. You were up in the morning at eight o'clock, and you didn't go to bed till twelve at night, and it, it was just absolutely wrecked. It was like they were trying to get as much life out of you as they could. They could, you yeah. know, using every bit out. Of you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean. Well, yeah. I remember watching uh, 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 u
saw with Bob Monkhouse a few years back and he was talking about Wipeout and how it was three weeks just back to back filming it was a three week block it was just relentless and non-stop yeah absolutely absolutely Josh and and um but Bob you see was the consummate professional um unbelievable I mean Colin who you Colin Edmonds who you interviewed recently He's a very, very close mate of mine. And I knew of Bob's schedule and the way Bob approached things. And apparently, when Bob did the uh, lottery show on television, Colin said he approached it as if he was doing the Royal Variety Show. And he, the, the, what, the work that went into it, his industry that, that he put into everything was of, you know, off the scale. So, um, so uh, very much, you know, not a rod for his own back, but that was exactly the man he was. Uh, he, he didn't leave anything to chance. Yeah. Uh, and you look at that lottery show. Um, I know we've the, the lottery's bedded in now, and it's part and parcel of our lives. But those lottery shows, there's not. It was watchable back in the day, but we don't. There's no show around the lottery anymore. Because yeah. since Bob went, um, there's no, you know, there's no, there's no reason to watch it. He'd got it, he'd got it all, and he'd got, he'd got everything, and he'd put little catchphrases in it, and he'd worked hard. Um, that's what he did. Him and Colin worked really hard at that. Um, he was a, yeah, he was. It, I think going back to what you said about. The, the hours and stuff. I think when you come up against people like Bob Monkhouse, he would set the bar, wouldn't he? You know, you've got to get that good. That's how good you've got to get. Hey, uh, uh, good. Yeah, and if you want to be that good and reach that level, you've really got to put the hours in anyway. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's... When he did Cabaret, Colin will tell you... Well, Colin's told you this, but when he did Cabaret, he wouldn't just go and do his act. He wanted notes on who was who before he went. So he would tell jokes about the managing director, the people in sales, the, you know, he'd go through everyone and he would personalise that show. I mean, he probably had stock jokes, but it it took a lot for him to, to do that. Um, and Les has got that about him, uh, that memory thing. And that just dawned on me that I, I, I've never told this about Les, but he... You could tell Les a joke now, and he would say, "I'm going to use that next Tuesday," and he and he would just slide it in, as if it was as if it had always been there. One day, I was with Les, and we were walking over Richmond Bridge in London, and this day we were going to Jersey, and it was lunchtime. We went and had something to eat in Richmond. We then missed a flight. And ended up in Jersey, in Guernsey. We got another flight from Guernsey to Jersey. Then we get to the club. Les said, I'm knackered, I'm going to have a sleep. Off he went for a sleep. I went to the club and set that up. And then he came on and he did his act. And he put the joke in that I told him on Richmond Bridge. And I'd forgotten about that. That was about, you know, 12 hours before. And he, he just told it as if it had always been in his act yeah. and never mentioned the fact that, like, you know, it was, you know, the joke was 
Why do Australians call it 4X? The beer 4X. It's because they can't spell piss, you see. <laughs> that was the joke. And, <laughs> and I'd forgotten about it. I'd forgotten the joke. And, and he just put it in at midnight as if it had been there forever. I think that's, I think that's part and parcel of his successes. They could learn and he could do stuff, you know. That takes a lot of doing. Having such a formidable career in entertainment, you'd be totally excused for enjoying a deserving retirement, but you had other ideas. Tell yeah. us about Sergeant Peppers. Sergeant Peppers. Sergeant Peppers Friends. It, it started as Sergeant Peppers Friendship Club, and then it's Sergeant Peppers Friends. Um, what it is is that I uh, work, uh, I do some work for a charity in uh, the West Midlands, and we, I've set up as the as their um, <clears throat> main man. I've set up exercise groups. I've set up speech groups. Um, I've set up lunch clubs. All sorts of things. And I used to keep going back to the trustees, and I used to say, "We're not dealing with the issue here. The issue is these people basically just want company." They want friends. They don't want to be made to exercise. There's there's a place and a time for that. They want a social group where they can have a laugh. They want to make friends. And I was told time and time again, no, you've not really, you don't really understand this. Anyhow, there was a girl called Bridget Brickley, and Bridget Brickley was married to a man who was an MP, and she came along and did some a feasibility study on my people. That, and she came along and she said at the end, she said, Roger, they, these people just want company. That's all they want. Uh, but you're making them do all sorts of things. So I'd got my evidence then. And then I went to some funders and asked for some funding. And I got this funding. And the funding is for Sergeant Pepper's, obviously off the album, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Arts Club Band. And it was all about people basically being lonely and there's different degrees of loneliness but it's all about wanting another friend really uh and i set up sergeant pepper's friendship club uh the first week we had about 12 come through the door which is great and then the second week there was 20 and then when lockdown hit us last year we were at, we'd got a, a working group of about a hundred so we'd have a hundred people come through the door. This is Tuesday, Tuesday morning at half past ten, and here's the thing: Tuesday morning, half past ten, we would have singers on, we would have poets, we would have speakers, we'll have a man with falconry, uh, anything. We even had a ninety-three-year-old um, acrobat. <laughs> <laughs> anything. <laughs> we'll do anything. And people love it, and they make friends, and that's all it is. And the success of it is all about that. It's just making friends, um, and it's great. So after that, we then went and got some more funding for a camper van. So the idea is to take it on the move. So the camper van turns up at places, and then people will flock to the camper van, and then we can point them in. It becomes a signing uh, uh, you know, we signpost people to various organisations yeah. because they find us. They do find us. You know, it's it it's it good and it works. You know, it is great. Yeah, great. Congratulations on that. Uh, how did your entertainment background help with that? Oh, enormously, enormously. I mean, because one, to start with, I mean, sound systems, I know how they work, so I'm I'm fine with that. Then I've got to stand there and introduce people and make, I've, I'm the host. And I feel like, I always imagine when I do these things, I always imagine it's people coming to my house so I make people welcome when yeah. they come. And I always imagine, how would I like to be 
welcomed when I turn up yeah. somewhere. The and I do that. Atmosphere, isn't it? The correct setting yeah. and atmosphere. Yeah. yeah. And it's important. It is. And then they, they, that atmosphere, they want to be part of that. Um, it's, it's incredible, really, because in my other role, I work with people who haven't got that. And they, they can't understand what my success is, if you know what I mean. And it's not a success. It's ever so simple. It's just treating people how you'd like to be treated. And you, when they come to your club, your venue, just just welcome them as if, you know, as if they're coming into your house. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, first thing they do when they come in, sit down, have a cup of tea, you know. And we've got people that will make someone a cup of tea, give them a piece of cake, um, and we just have a giggle. And it's what you do in someone's house. Yeah. Only this is on a bigger scale. And it's 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 lovely. The friendships then become organic. They become normal. And then these people end up, like there'll be four of them go off to the cinema. There'll be three of them in normal times, obviously. There'll be few of them go at the garden centre. Then we'll go to the restaurant. We'll have something to eat. And then it becomes a normal it's not a forced friendship. It's an it's a, a natural friendship, yeah. and it's okay. It can go on its own. Then, it's lovely. It is. It's a lovely thing. Honestly, it really is. Ever so simple. Looking back at your career, what's your proudest achievement? What I'm doing now, actually, the the Sergeant Pepper stuff is. Uh, I'm very proud of that. I was a Samaritan for years. Um, I was very proud of that, but. I think this is more practical. The fact that you're actually the Samaritans, t- it, you know, is is very much a listening service where you listen to people, um, uh, and you 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 discuss their issues, and you never you never meet them, obviously, unless they, there's a you do a face to face. But this, what I'm doing now, I can see it. I can physically see these people becoming better for having a friend. And it's ever so easy. It's ever so simple. You feel better when you've got some friends and you've got mates. You do, we do it ourselves, you know, uh, when you've got mates when you're a kid. And then your mates all drift away, don't they, as you, as you start being sensible. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Being, yeah. being an adult. <laughs> being an adult's rubbish. Yeah, sure is. When you're a kid, you have my son goes out in an afternoon and... At now with lockdown, he, he goes out in an afternoon, he comes back at 10 o'clock at night and he reels off the kids he's been with, you know, there'll be 10 or 12 of these people and it's it's lovely really, yeah. friendship is a lovely lovely thing yeah. important and it is yeah it's all about breaking the cycle as well because you've given people like a device that they can come back to and you know they're reaping the rewards of it yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is that cycle, and you've, you when you say you you break it, um, it's funny enough. As we've just before we we came on here on air, I should should I say, um, I've had a guy. Uh, he was messaging me, and I know that he's got mental health issues through, because of COVID, and breaking the cycle is exactly exactly what you just said, Josh exactly what we've done what i've just done with him to get him to i've said i've invited him to a picnic if the truth be told yeah and that's all it that's all it is it's nothing more special than that yeah. you know there's no it's not brain surgery it's and you <laughs> the ball starts rolling then and once you start that there's a friendship and you know you you're doing your best aren't you people yeah and I think I think this COVID, I think the virus is just one little aspect of it. 
I think the mental health side and uh, the loneliness, it, it, that's the bigger story that's got to come out. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah yeah there's different uh types of loneliness as well you know you could be in a room full of people and still feel yeah overriding sense that oh you know so 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 right do you know i'll tell you something my mom was in sheltered housing um for about don't know how many years before she passed away and I used to pop round and see her. And she'd say, do you know, she'd say, I haven't seen a bleeding soul all day. And I'd say to her, but you, you've, there's a girl in the kitchen cooking your dinner. There's, you know, you've seen so-and-so down the room. You've been down the room and you've been with a dozen yeah. people. And she'd say, oh, and I didn't get it properly. And it, I, I realised really what it what she meant was i haven't seen the right people yeah yeah she'd see she'd seen lots of people but they weren't the right they weren't the people she wanted to see she wanted to see me and my sisters that's what she wanted um and she was right you know um but there is that thing what you just said there Ian, about when you're in a room full of people and you can be lonely because they're not for you they're not they're not your people or yeah. you, this isn't where I want to be or whatever. Um, and it's a terrible thing. And you can, you can, you know, when you come away from that and you feel terrible, you feel, what have I, why aren't I enjoying this? Yeah. You know, you feel out of place still. Yeah. yeah. It's like you're being the only person that doesn't laugh at the joke, isn't it? Yeah. You know, why aren't I laughing? I, I don't find it good. I, you know, but yeah. It's it's true, so it's it's all about kindness and friendship, isn't it? And it's more important than all of this silliness with entertainment and stuff. It's 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 very important, more important than ever now. Yeah, definitely. And final question: What's next for Roger Edwards? What's next? Yeah, more and more. Uh, what's next? Well, fully enough, I'm doing a project now. For called Forgotten Voices, and this project, Forgotten Voices, it's I'm interviewing people who have not been spoken to, who've lived on their own, generally throughout the pandemic. Um, what's their take on it? I've got eight questions, and I ask these eight people eight questions. You know, what have you learnt, and etc. And I'm putting that together as a package, and hopefully. It be, it goes into the archives in the West Midlands, so that in the in the event of horrible things happening again, yeah. people will look back and say, "How did they cope in 2020 and 2021?" Yeah. And someone will say, yeah. "Look it up," and they'll they'll find this project and they'll say, "Ah, they did jigsaw puzzles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they had a laugh. They one woman did knitting until she." knit everyone in a family a scarf and all these things. Yeah. Yeah. That's what that's what the future holds. Yeah. More and more. Yeah, sounds good. Sounds good. Anything else? <laughs> yeah, it's a record of how people lived as well. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. How did we live? Yeah. You know, I mean I've been reading recently. You probably have yourselves about how how did they cope in the in nineteen eighteen with the pandemic, mm-hmm. um, and d- did you know, like for instance, after the pandemic, there was a almost a surge in Parkinson's disease. Um, I didn't know that until the other day, and lots of things that followed it. Uh, so, how did they cope? I think very much like we did. We have, but they haven't had a telly. They haven't had this Zoom and internet. They haven't had the radio. They haven't had the phone. So yeah. it, 
it must have been hell on earth for them. Or was it? You know, where you don't know. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great way to leave it today. It is a great way to leave it. Can I just say a big thank you to Josh and Ian for having me on this? I feel I feel privileged for doing this, to be honest. Um, thank, thank you. Thank, me. thank, thank you. you. Time, you know. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah. And let's hope we're all out of this pandemic soon. Yeah, fingers crossed. Thank you to our guest for being the subject of another Beyond the Title interview. If you liked this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy. Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates on forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again and hopefully see you next time.